What did you have for breakfast today? Uh, what did I have for breakfast? I had uh, porridge, which had some uh, apples chopped up in it and some walnuts and some chia seeds. Nice. And that's your gold standard, right? No. Uh, normally I go for multiple fruit of different types, chopped up with uh, all the different sorts of nuts I can get, there, including chia seeds and everything else, just a variety. It doesn't matter what it is. There's no superfood. I just want a variety <laughs> with um, Greek yogurt as opposed to Greek style yogurt because Greek style yogurt has uh, stabilizers which interfere with your gut bacteria <laughs> having access to your gut wall, whereas Greek yogurt doesn't. It's a superior thing. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Neural Media is an effortless and affordable content production service. We help businesses save time and money by taking away the pain of producing content. If you want to grow your audience through content production, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash media. Create a quote and request a callback from me personally. If you want to learn more about the benefits of growing your audience, download our free series on how to create content at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast receive a special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON. Welcome to Uncommon, the podcast that helps you build your knowledge, skills, and mindset through interviews with unique individuals. My name is Jordan Michaelides, and I'm your host. In this episode, I have for you Dr. Carl. Carl is obviously a doctor, author, entertainer, shirt aficionado, and for a lot of people like myself and Gen X to Z, the man who introduced them to the wonderful world of science. In his own words, Dr. Carl is an answer looking for a question. And you can feel that immense desire to solve your science problems through his passion and the way that he actually engages you. It was surreal interviewing Carl, having grown up listening to him on Triple J, much like Tom Ballard, as a young teen and into my early 20s, with his weekly podcast now sort of a staple every week. Carl is as affable in real life as he is through media. I could feel the passion that he displays in his work as we were sort of walking around the Sofitel talking about why certain rooms on his floor level and the angles they're built on made them his favorite. The ability to understand the world around us increases with importance as technology becomes a greater element of our lives. Dr. Carl is, to me, the pinnacle of what it means to be a communicator, or as he puts it, a science entertainer, to an ever-interested public. This is a brilliant chat that covers aspects of Carl's life and experience, including his father's Holocaust experience, rational thought and the evolutionary brain, storytelling and computer hacking crimes, the weirdest question he's been asked, Dr. Rhonda Patrick and sauna use, communicating science and entertainers he enjoys, and lastly, looking at what his first 100 days as Prime Minister would look like. I think this is a very, very enjoyable episode for people who grew up listening to Carl, who enjoy science, entertainment, or Triple J. So if you have a friend similar to yourself, 
do send this to them. If you enjoy this specific episode, consider subscribing on your podcast app. And if you want to find similar episodes, you can head to our index at neural.com slash podcast, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash podcast. But if you want something fairly similar, I would go look at episode 70, which was with the Psygasm podcast boys talking about making science funny. And they actually interviewed Carl on their podcast as well. Uh, So make sure you do go check that out. Um, But as I say each week, thank you so much for listening our regulars for coming back, our newbies for giving us a shot. I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Dr. Carl. Thank you for joining me on this pleasant Monday evening with the beautiful view as well. Yeah, it's nice um, up here in the high levels looking over downtown Melbourne. I love Melbourne. It's a much nicer city than Sydney. It doesn't have the harbour, <laughs> but the city itself is so much friendlier on a more human scale. It is. Kind of like Paris with not too many tall buildings around the place. But a lot of people are very, very grumpy when it comes to driving here in Melbourne. Very grumpy. Mate, you want to get grumpy, come to Sydney. <laughs> well, one thing we can say about mm. New South Wales is that while you Victorians might come close every now and then, consistently, New South Wales is the most incompetent and corrupt state in Australia, and it shows in the state of our roads and public transport and the fact that it costs 10 times as much to build a road in New South Wales as it does in the United States. Really? And they put up a big railway line through the air with big concrete pylons, and even before they ran a train on it, the bits of concrete just started falling off under their own weight. <laughs> and we can, we can date back exactly when the corruption started in New South Wales. I'm going with the 20th of January, 1788. Okay, there you go. Yeah, I've, uh, there's been a lot of calls to have a federal ICAC on the last day or so. Um, be interesting if there was one in Melbourne, in Victoria. Um, corruption is a cancer that eats at the heart of a state. And this comes from all over the place. You just want to keep it down to reasonable levels. Yeah. Now, your shirts, uh, everyone knows or is well aware, I think if they've listened to Triple J, the process involved, three hours of shirt. Yeah, my wife your makes wife them. makes yeah, them. Yeah, it takes three hours with a four-thread overlocker and differential feed. And the shirt <laughs> does, and the overlocker does about 80% of the shirt. And then the sewing machine with the buttonhole attachment, uh, which now we've got one with a buttonhole thingy built into it, uh, that uh, takes about 20% of the time to finish off the shirt and put the panels together. Okay. And how many do you have now in this grand collection? Uh, it's a floating population. Okay. They're um, probably about 40, but there's probably only about 5 to 10 that are peak performance ones. So this one here is not peak performance anymore. This is a transit shirt for going out in public as opposed to one of going on stage. Right. So you've got your designated stage work transit well it's part of shower it's part of stagemanship like um i was a roadie for bo diddley for a while and he taught me that sort of stuff and so when you're blobbing around the house your country and western singers just wearing jeans and t-shirts and thongs and when they go on stage they're wearing high-heeled snakeskin boots with tight leather pants and a leather jacket with tassels and the rhinestones and a hat and all that sort of stuff it's stage clothing right so there's two different modalities and you've got to know when to be in one or the other mm. now i've quite enjoyed looking back at your history and and i think this is important for our audience to understand a bit about who you are and why you do what you do um 
Now, you're the son of two Polish-born Jewish migrants. I think you were no. born in Sweden, immigrated. No? no? Um, my mother was Jewish. My father was Catholic. Okay. And so you immigrated here at the age of two, I believe. Two and a bit, yeah. Two and a bit. Something around there, yep. In Bonagilla for, for three years, I Grew think. Grew up in a refugee camp, yep. Now, how old were you when you were in... What year was it when you were in Bonagilla? Don't know, exactly 51 something. Okay, so you were there the same year that my um, my father-in-law was there. So mm. he, he was a son of uh, a German and a Pole. Oh, so yeah. they got married, I think, 49. Uh-huh. Um, pregnant in 50, immigrated over here, and he was just born... In Bonagilla. Oh, he was born in a refugee camp. Yeah. Well, it's better than other refugee camps where people are trying to kill you, so... Yeah, that's for sure. Now, I was looking back at that history and thinking about your parents must have gone through a lot having survived the Holocaust. So, you, I think it was your mother who survived the yeah, Holocaust, Yeah, and my right? father too. Every, every, everybody who's been through war has been through a lot. Mm. And so, right now, Australia is in its 17th war, even though we've only been invaded once. And the majority of the people who come back from a war are kind of broken. And a few people managed to skate through and come back actually kind of better and ready to go and take over a business because they've just managed to sort of skate through and been lucky. Yeah. But the majority of people get broken by wars. Do you think your parents were broken in that regards? Oh, yeah. My mother wouldn't um, talk about the past. She denied that she'd ever been... Uh, in Europe and she uh, in, in the war and she claimed that she just sat out the war in Sweden being a happy little Lutheran girl Wow! and denied it all. My yeah. father was quite open about it though. He didn't mind. It's very interesting looking at my f- father-in-law's family and, and that background like was in the Polish uh, army essentially part of the invasion via Italy. Spoke seven languages, went through a lot and obviously that affected him quite dramatically. And then again, his mother was uh, German growing up in the Hitler Youth, so they're essentially brainwashed. Well, they had to um, go in a Hitler Youth or else the family yeah. wouldn't get any food, big yeah. one. So it's it's very interesting to see and to talk with him about that. I'm curious as to, from your parents, and thinking about who you are today, what's a lesson or principle that you still hold with you? And they may have said that to you directly or indirectly at some kind. Um. Well, not to let the grudges go on. So in my father's case, he was at Saxon House, and I've been back there, and I walked across it a whole bunch of times, so that way I'd be pretty sure of crossing a path that he would have walked on at some stage. And he managed to get out of Sachsenhausen, which is just outside of Berlin, because he had a tin of sardines, and he managed to use that when um, the Nazis were abandoning the camp and the Allies were approaching. He used that as a bribe to get himself put into the Russian part of the concentration camp, and he took on the identity of a Russian soldier who had died of appendicitis. Because he was one of the people who was... His job, because he was a big strong bloke, was to pick up the dead Jews who'd been gassed to death and then chuck them on his shoulders and carry them to the lift where they'd go up to the elevators to get uh, thrown in the ovens and burnt. And he knew that he would get killed. 
as soon as anybody's trying to rescue them. And so he managed to, because he was good mates with the camp doctor and played chess with him and could speak 12 languages, he managed to get himself into the Russian part wow. of the concentration camp so they weren't automatically executed. And there he saw Russians eating each other um, without even cooking each other. They were just killing each other and eating each other's brains because that was only part of their body that had any fat on it. Wow. And um, he came to Australia and got a job and worked on the water board. So he's a man with two degrees and the best job he could get was being a labourer. And he worked his way up to being in the hiring section, uh, what they call personnel, human resources nowadays. Uh, and he um, was there because he could speak 12 languages and there's all these different people from all over the world coming in. Yeah. And one day a guy came in whom he recognised as his... Um, brutal guard at the Saxonhausen concentration camp who had killed some of his my father's friends. Well, and he a German man. A German guard, a Nazi guard. Wow. Who had killed some of my father's friends. And he was coming in under a fake name. And my father talked to him and the longer he talked to him the more he convinced he was that he was the guy and so he, he went through the whole process and said okay you, um, you got a job now just turn up on Monday at such and such a place and we'll start you off and then he said oh by the way and he called him by his real name and his rank and the, and the guy's face just went white and he just sort of sat down he just sort of collapsed and then after about a minute he said well what do you want to do you want to call the cops or you know something in German I don't know and uh, my father said no I'm not going to do anything um, really? It's just our secret, you and me. I'm never going to tell anybody except you and you know and I know and that's it. Oh, and, my God. And, my fa- and he said to my father, why? And he said, well, it's not for you. It's for your children. And then that week, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know this till years later. This kid came in with a kind of semi-German name and um, because he was a little wog kid like me and we were picked on by all of the Anglo-Irish Catholics at the school, we sort of got to know each other and I ended up going around to his place. So it was the weirdest thing that my father was letting me take the bus to visit this man who'd murdered several of his friends. And then... Um, he went through primary school with me and high school and then went to university and did some sort of electrical engineering and got to be the boss of a big company and he had a good life because my father broke the cycle of hate. Wow. That I mean, is amazing. Yeah, but imagine what would happen if you get revenge. You say, okay, I want to get you. And then, okay, so the guy gets lumbered and goes to jail. What about the family? They fall apart. Um, then, then you don't end up with a happy income. Mm. Sorry, happy outcome and a good income. Yeah. So it ended up as a happy ending. Um, and, the, and as far as I know, the guy never murdered anybody else. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I just read a book on persuasion about the idea that there's always one screen but two movies playing. And it sort of goes to the point that he could have looked for retribution or mm. he could have just did what he did, which is break the cycle yeah which is well, really interesting i've got some friends from the old yugoslavia and um depending on where they are they hate their neighbors because of something that happened back in 1300 yeah oh come on guys <laughs> look my my uh my family's greek cypriot and they've uh my dad used to always say oh, i hate the turks i hate the turks but we went to turkey in 2012 and now he loves the turks oh that's sort much of, better you know it's one of those things it's sort of a story that you're told over and over again and therefore you it sort of becomes your life you know mm. so um 
yeah, it's a very, very interesting component of life, I guess. Well, it's a weird thing about the human brain that for us humans to survive against a background of all the other animals trying to kill us, we had to get something going for us because our teeth weren't that good, neither were our claws, so we got intelligence going and we formed ourselves into groups. But then within the groups, the people who do best are the ones who can simultaneously be nice and friendly and compassionate and be part of the group and on the other hand double cross them and screw them over and they'll be the ones who rise to the top. So the scary thing is that during the slave owning period there were people who on one hand were loving to their families but on the other hand treat other human beings like slaves and treat them differently. Yeah. And you, you had the two behaviour patterns of kindness and brutality in the same human brain, in the same body. Yeah. it's Look, it's one of those things. I, I, I've been deeply fascinated by the stories we tell each other hmm. or tell ourselves ever since I've read that book by Yuval Noah Harari. Don't know, Sapi- tell me about it. Sapiens. It's, uh, yeah. Well, he just goes through the idea... Uh, that essentially most things are a story and that we're willing to believe it from a certain perspective and how things change over time and how different stories sort of pervade the mind, so to speak. It's a very, very interesting book. Ah, it's called Sapiens. Sapiens, okay. Like Homo sapiens. Okay, lovely. Um, Going to your point before about, or when I was speaking about persuasion, how we can believe these stories, you've spoken a lot about the lack of rational thought out there in in the world at the moment, particularly with previous interviews. I think I was listening back to one with, uh, with Will Anderson. We also, uh, we had the, the Sigasm podcast guys, which I think you're on their podcast as ah, well a while ago. Yeah. Um, and you were speaking about this as well. And I, I just thought it interesting because, you know, we're in this world, Donald Trump's the, the leader of the free world, so to speak. We congregate in these weird little groups on the internet. You know, I used to be part of these groups. I guess you'd call them those atheist groups, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris's of the world, where everything is about rational thought. But we're sort of going this opposite way where we're falling into these groups of our own thought, so to speak, or think. And I'm curious as to how we can make rational thought or scientific thought more persuasive. You know, when we're in a world where social media grabs in the headlines, all that sort of stuff is far more persuasive. How can you make the right answer more persuasive? You can't. It just is. Mm. Uh, On the other hand, we are wired up, thanks to evolution, to be ready to pay more attention to bad news. Because if the news is, hey, today is going to be a fine day just like yesterday was, (laughs) as opposed to... There's a tsunami sweeping down on the city and you've got 10 minutes to get to high ground. Now, it might not be true, but you should pay attention to it just in case it is. And that was useful hundreds and thousands of years ago. Not so useful today because you don't have the same incidence of bad events happening. They're very rare. And it's just used as an attention grabber in most cases to get you to click on something as clickbait on the internet Mm. so that somebody, some advertising mob gets a tenth of a cent and this happens a million times so they get a budget happening. Yeah. Right? So we are wired up to be prepared to pay attention to bad news in the same way that we're wired up to forget stuff 
when we go through a doorway. Mm. And the reason for that is an experiment has been done. Like I'm sure it's happened to you, like you sort of go into the kitchen having a break and you think, why am I here in the kitchen? Oh, yeah, I was going to have a cup of tea. And you get your cup of tea and you go back to what you were doing. You said, what was I doing before? And each time you go through a doorway, your brain, from an evolutionary point of view, scans the room. So you go into the kitchen and you're scanning around. You've got your hands up with the gun up and you're ready to scan the room and you're looking for the killer toaster, the killer washing machine, the killer sink, the killer stove, room clear, okay, enter. And you do that automatically without thinking about it and you forget the past. Mm -hmm. So from a historical point of view, we were in the open plains, but before we got there, we were in the jungle. So while you're in the jungle, you're looking out for the killer gorilla, and as soon as you go out into the open plains, you forget all the past and you concentrate on what's there in front of you, because if you don't, the little brown movement in the grass could be a lion stalking you. So we are wired up to be more ready to accept Bad news because it'll save your bacon. If you go, oh, come on, that bit of khaki moving in the green grass, nah, it's just somebody wearing khaki. And I know they haven't invented clothes, but it just is. And then you get eaten by the lion. So there is an advantage in being ready to accept bad news. And that's just being played upon. And all you need is some degree of exposure to it. And then after a while, you should come out the other side and go, Mate, I've spent six months cl- you know, clicking on this all, all this crap. It's just crap. Mm. Um, and then it's up to you to realise it and then control it yourself in the same way as you should control your food intake. So in the old days, with not enough food around, mate, if there was some food, you just ate it. Yeah, you go nuts. And it didn't matter if you were full, you kept on eating because it might not be there tomorrow. But nowadays, you have to be in control of it with your intellectual brain. And you say, it's really delicious. We're having a really good time. The wine's nice. Everybody's nice. Nice beer. Everybody's lovely. I'm laughing a lot. But I will not anymore eat anymore because I'm not hungry. And you've got to tell yourself, you've got to use your rational brain to overcome your evolutionary brain. Yeah. And it's the same with news. The responsibility to some degree lies with those who are telling the lies really persuasively. And the Russians has just come out now, had set up bots to give both sides of the vaccination and anti-vaccination argument with ex- massive exaggeration, so they definitely attract interest. Yeah. You know, you don't get vaccinated, everybody you've ever met will die, or vaccinations cause cancer. You know, and so they were trying just to trigger extreme reactions. And I saw some of them come floating past me because I read widely, and um, I thought, oh, let me have a look at that. Yeah, it's crap. I'm not going to waste my time. So there's a certain degree of responsibility by people. Yeah. And, and they fall for it. I'm just thinking about habits that people can instill. Like, you know, you, you raise the point that you sort of had to use this fight or flight mode to survive 10, 15,000 years yeah, back ago. Then, yeah. And a good example of that is, you know, the last week I've started doing hot and then like immediately free, not immediately, but not long after a really cold shower. And I'd, I'd cycle through that because, you know, there's a lot of benefits to having cold showers and, and there are. the process of going hot and cold. There are. Um, there and, are, question mark. Yeah. I'll, I'll say nothing, but keep going. Yeah, go on. Now, what I find interesting is the first few times, obviously my body was shocked. Like immediately, not just the cold, but you could I could feel it in the heart rate. So the heart rate goes up and your body is shocked into this feeling by the cold water. So... I'm thinking about what you're saying and, and, and how that represents sort of 
where we are now because over time I just sort of became used to it. You know, it's not as much of a shock anymore. It doesn't raise the heart rate, so on and so forth. So I'm curious as to, for an individual, how can you be more rational? Is it, do you have a habit of reading an hour every night and, and only reading long form material? Is it something else entirely? I read everything. Yeah. Uh, and I make a point of reading the crap like, do you read Nexus magazine? No. Oh, it's great. It comes out of the Sunshine Coast. Um, Nexus magazine. Uh, N-E-X-U-S. What, what is this for so our audience can know? It's a magazine for crazy people. Okay. So it's got things in it like electromagnetic radiation will kill you. But then another article says it will cure everything. And so will Ormus, and there's all these remedies that will both cure you and make you better and improve your handwriting. And there was one recent article where apparently the, um, this was the front cover, the Nazis didn't lose the Second World War. They actually won the Second World War because that was the best way to win with their falling numbers. And then they took over the world via the Illuminati and built a dozen, because that's a magic number, uh, underground huge cities on Earth joined by supersonic trains, as well as a base on the far side of the moon, which they had going for the last 40 or 50 years. And they launched them from Antarctica. And this explains why there are so few female scientists in Antarctica, because they're continuously, continually kidnapping the female scientists as breeding stock. <laughs> right? Mate, I read this and I think this, there's people who believe this and you know, it's the same with the um, flat earth and any crazy thing. So I try to keep my finger on the pulse of what uh, the irrational people are believing. Mm. And knowing what the irrational people are believing, then that makes it easier for you to be rational. And look, rationality isn't everything. Like It's not there for love exactly. and for the, your children or family, but it is a lovely thing to have to help you get through life. I follow the motto of um, Richard Feynman, where he said that science is a way to not get fooled. Yeah. And, and sometimes just having a good dose of reality helps you, helps you get through life better. Well, the, this book, Sapiens, which I think you would quite enjoy, they spoke about the fact that science and rationality oftentimes can't always give you an answer. Of course they that's, can't. That's we don't why. know what happened before the Big Bang. Yeah. And we don't know whether you should go for a job or go and get more education. Exactly. There's no way to tell. you just got to go with the flow, man. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm curious. I mean, growing up in my late teens, early 20s, um, I probably listened to... Q&A with Dr. Carl and Zan Rowe almost religiously every week on the way to uni, mind you, to the point that I would almost be annoyed when I found out I had a lecture, I think it was, that anywhere from 10 to 12 um, on a Thursday morning. But what I love so much about your show and, and what you do is just the enthusiasm that you hold. And, you know, obviously you won that Ig Nobel Prize for belly button fluff but I, I just find it amusing all the different areas that you cover and how they're so niche and fascinating and that's what sort of brings people in so I'm curious has that always been your plan well, is that the grand theory of color storytelling uh, the theory of storytelling is very simple it goes back several thousand years start off with something amazing or a hook to drag them in um, tell a story finish off with a joke okay that's it that's it. Yeah, do it again. Repeat. And that's that's the principles hand down, hands down. That's that's. Yeah, it goes back thousands it. of years, and you got to make them laugh. You got to entertain them, and you got to make them feel good, and you got to amaze them. You got to put on a show. Mm -hmm. 
And luckily there's lots of weird stuff going on in science. Like I've just been reading a story. I'm still trying to work it out, which has led me to the realisation I'm going to disconnect my fax machine. Okay. Why? Well, you, you remember those old-fashioned fax machines? Yeah. And they're still kind of around. So in many cases you get a printer and it hooks in via the mm. uh, RJ45 or the blue Ethernet cable. And so it hooks into your uh, network, but it also hooks into the phone line via a phone cable. Okay. And just recently, somebody has worked out how to send you a fax picture of an image that has malware in it that then takes over the fax machine, this primitive intelligence, and then injects malware into your network. Wow. Wow. So, well, so suddenly... Because it's joined to the phone network via an insecure connection, people can take over your network by sending you a fax. Yeah. Oh, my God, I had no idea of that. Did you hear about the story of a young Russian gentleman who was about 19 that sent a sort of Stuxnet virus to – it was either Target or Kmart in America – to their air conditioning system, the software for their air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it got from the software on the air conditioning system to – the software related to their accounting system, and so every he was able to do that. Yeah, and every and their and then eventually their point of sale system. So every single transaction that went through, it skimmed one cent, and you can imagine that really starts to add up. Per, wow, well, per it goes back to the very first computer crime in the mid nineteen sixties, where a computer person was setting up a system with a fruit and veg company, where they had lots of transactions during the day where they bought and sold fruit from you know the middleman, and he actually ended up skimming you know, half a cent off each transaction and putting it into 17 accounts. And the trouble was it took so much hard work that he was getting exhausted that he voluntarily confessed to having stolen in today's money about $16 million (laughs) because he was just getting exhausted from all the hard work and being a thief. Wow, that's hilarious. Yeah, that that target virus was uh, something that was a very interesting story to listen to. Well, Star, uh, I didn't hear that one, but Stuxnet was something that the Americans yeah. and the Israelis managed to put into the centrifuges that were purifying the uh, uranium to up to weapons grade uranium two three five. So from be beyond the point seven percent up to five and ten and twenty and forty and fifty percent, mm. and they were able to make the centrifuges blow up Essentially, by controlling. Yeah the Siemens controllers. Yeah. Wow. This is, this is the Iranian uh, regime's nuclear program. Yeah. yeah. And it looks like it it was still operational, but essentially it was imploding. Um, well, you've, you've got to get the uranium if you want to make a nuclear weapon. Uh, you want to do it with uranium. It's really easy. Uh, plutonium is harder. Uh, you've got to get the uranium uh, 235 up around 20, 30, 50, 70% depending. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to do it. And centrifuge is, is the easiest way, um, because the two three five is slightly lighter than the two three eight. So you just spin it for days yeah. and weeks, and you just keep on removing the middle bit, and then that's slightly more concentrated. And you just keep on doing that, and all you have to do is just have it go bad for an hour or so, and you've lost several months' work. Wow! And what they were doing was having the centrifuges speed up and slow down, and not communicate this to the control people because somebody picked up a USB stick and took it into the network. (laughs) 
Yeah, that is fascinating. Mm. It's it's very smart statecraft. Well, it's war. Yeah, it's war. It yeah. is war. What's um you, you know I just spoke about before my own experience listening to you growing up. What's the story that comes to mind that you think is you've had the most impact on someone in their life that's really made you just smile? Well, the weirdest one <laughs> was when a lady rang in and said. Hi, Dr. Carl. Whenever I have oral sex with my husband and his penis hits the back of my throat, I go temporarily deaf. So I got all my go- girlfriends to try it out to see if it was real and happened to them. Why? <laughs> and that was live on air, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a genuine wow. question. That's hilarious. Yeah. So that's that's the number one question. That's the one that made, made you smile. Well, I, I had an answer, luckily. Yeah. And what is the answer? Well, consider the hearing apparatus. So you've got these things on the outside of your head to hold your glasses up and they also help focus the sound coming in towards your ears, one on each side, uh, from down in front of you and off to the left and right. Mm-hmm. And then the sound comes in through the ear canal and then the sound waves push against the eardrum. So the whole system is evolved to match the impedance as a technical uh, mechanical engineering term, to get maximum movement of the eardrum. Even so, when you're listening to the quietest noise you can possibly listen to, the eardrum is moving backwards and forwards a distance equal to the diameter of a hydrogen atom. Hmm. So it's ve- it has to be very flexible to keep moving. Now, on the other side of the eardrum is a space called the middle ear. Do you know a bit of ear anatomy? And so you've got two pipes leading from your ears, heading inwards and down towards the back of your throat. And these are the eustachian canals or the internal auditory canals. And the reason that kids have so many more middle ear infections than adults is that, number one, they don't tilt down so much because they haven't done so much growing. So they're almost horizontal rather than heading down so they don't drain so much. And number two, they have, and I'm going to use a technical phrase, Immature neuromuscular innovation. Mm-hmm. Now think about that. Immature means not fully grown. Neuromuscular, so nerves and muscles. Innovation, the wiring. So the nerves controlling the muscles are not fully wired up and they're not married properly to the muscles, so they don't open up properly. Hmm. Okay, and this is on the other side of the eardrum. So we're thinking, now, now that's one bit of information. Another bit of information, think of a sheet. Uh, that you're you know, putting through the washing machine and hanging on the clothesline and you, you're drying it. By the way, do you know in America that hanging your clothes on the clothesline proves you're poor and poor white trash? Really? Yeah. Why? So um, if you're modern, you'll put your clothes through an electric clothes dryer, a heater. And that's it. And 14% of all American power is used to dry clothes. They don't use clotheslines. <laughs> and in fact, if you... How many fires are caused by that? they're probably pretty good at getting rid of the lint. Right. So, in, a, in fact, you, you'll notice if you watch for it now that if you're watching a movie in an opening shot, if they want to establish that you're dealing with a poor family, uh, the shot will start off at the front and there'll be a few toys sticking out of the unmown grass and you come around the side of the house with some stuff, some palings falling off and a broken window, then out of the back they'll have clothes on the clothesline proving that they're poor people, right? <laughs> Which is funny because in Australia, I think most people prefer to have a clothes line of some oh, kind. Mate, I, I love hanging clothes on a clothes line yeah. because... Um, dries, I hate dries. Well, you, I use them if I have to when you've got to get something ready for tomorrow and it's been raining for a yeah. couple of days and you've got no choice. Sure, no big deal. But 
like uh, I, I hang clothes on the clothesline with the big heavy ones on the outside. I've got a swinging, irritating clothesline. So the big, heavy, thick ones, like the towels on the outside, and then a layer of undies inside out. So the sun shines on the what's the inside of the undies and kills the germs with ultraviolet. Uh, yeah. And then some T-shirts and then another short lace. So I go short, long, short, long, all the way in. <laughs> and um, I, I love washing the clothes on the clothesline. So getting back to the story. So if you have a sheet hanging on a clothesline and there's a bit of a wind, well, it's pegged at the top and it'll just sort of go flabbity, flabbity, flabbity. Like your eardrum under normal conditions. Under normal conditions, your eardrum is very compliant and it'll sort of go backwards and forwards easily. Now, think of the – go back to the clothesline. Imagine you then hang some heavy weights on it and then peg it to the ground mm-hmm. and then the wind blows it hardly moves at all. Yeah. In the same way, when the penis hits the back of the throat, my hypothesis is it closes off the eustachian tube openings at the back of the throat and puts a pressure wave up that then uh, preloads the eardrum – with a high yeah. increased pressure, so the eardrum can't move so much, it's not compliant, thus leading to the fact that when the lady said she got all of her friends, her girlfriends, to try it out on their husbands, and it happened to them too. Wow. That's very useful. <laughs> well, I was able to sort of sneak in a bit of anatomy, but if I went to somebody and said, look, now look, Cheryl, it's about time you learn some human and uh, auditory anatomy, they'd say, rack off hairy legs. <laughs> if it's part of uh, why do I go deaf during oral sex, ah, right, yeah. yeah. And so there was a carpenter who rang in and said, how come when I'm doing some very fine sanding, you know, like with 1,224-grade paper, do you know about paper, sandpaper? Not, not that. Okay, so eight, 80 is really coarse. Okay. You can you run your fingernails across it and you feel it going bumpity-bumpity. And um, when once you get up over about a 1,000 or something, it's really smooth. Right. You can run your fingernail across it and not feel any bumps. But it's very fine sanding. So who's using 2,400-grade paper, oh, wow. which is really fine? And he said, uh, now I understand when I go out on a hot, on a cold morning and I breathe out, I can see all my little water droplets hanging in the air. But today's a really hot day and I'm doing the fine sanding, and the water droplets are just hanging in the air when I breathe out. What's going on? And so I was able to point out that the fine particles of wood that he was sanding were acting as nucleation centres and helping the water change state from a gas into a liquid. Really? The, the, the fine w- particles. That's why you drop uh, sodium iodide as fine particles into clouds to act as nucleation centres to help the water droplets coalesce or help, help the water gas uh, coalesce into water droplets which then get big enough to fall out of the cloud as rain. Wow. But if I'd gone up to him in a pub and said, now look, Fred, about time you bloody learned about nucleation centres, he'd say, rack off, hairy legs. <laughs> right, so you've got to find the hook. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I, th- I hope our audience is realizing why I listened to you for for so many years and still do to this day oh, with the podcast. Now, what's this about you having hot and cold showers? Where did you read that this has medical advantages? Um, or health advantages? What's her, what's her name? Uh, found my fitness. She's a she's a researcher on metabolic disease, uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, and she speaks a lot about things like uh, sauna. And best practices for sauna, amongst other things. Is she a medical doctor? Yeah. Yeah, she's there. And I can't remember. I'd have to in look at the USA somewhere? Yeah, she's she's uh, a researcher in, um, I don't know if it's Caltech. Hang on, is she a researcher or is she a medical doctor or is she both? I think she's both, yeah. At least from memory. I mean, I know it's Dr. Rhonda Patrick, so. Ah, now she's going on about how saunas are good for you. 
I mean, she's no. They feel she, nice. There's she's no. no doubt about it. She's you no. Sure she's crazy. got a medical degree. Yeah. How do you know? Well, I'm not 100 percent accurate, am I? So by yes, you mean you don't know? I'm most cool with that. most likely. Probably. Yeah. Well, I remember uh, one really good lesson for me in um, knowing what words come out of your mouth is when I was working as a medical doctor and we do a handover yeah. and the answer to the question, did Jordan get his antibiotics for his pneumonia? The answer is yes, meaning I'm 100% sure he did or no or I don't know as opposed to, yeah, should have, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so what if he dies? Well, there's another patient willing to get into the hospital. And that, that, I, I got a really good lesson from that. Yeah. Um, to know what you know is true. There's actually, uh, I know this sounds uh, like a myth, but there is actually a South American language where the chain of cognizance is implied in the sentence. So you say, I know... Uh, I read this article by Dr. Rhonda, because, and I know she's a doctor because I read her CV and I checked up that she did, in fact, graduate from such and such a school. And that's said in each sentence. Mm. So there's a chain of reality hooked into each sentence, whereas nowadays it's, nah, we never went to the moon because the earth is flat and uh, <laughs> God just put an alabaster dome over the earth and then got some blue carbon and glued on with contact cement and then the, he's got some fireflies up there that get active at night and that's why you think they're stars, but of course it's not. I can see what you mean. I mean, I, d I don't think she's in that um, category of Nexus magazine. Let's put it that. Is it Nexus? Love Nexus. You've got to read it. It's, um, it's fun. She does really interesting work though. She, she covers a lot on... Um, you you know of twenty three mean how you do your your spit test and you find uh, the polymorphisms within your genes twenty three mean keep going have you heard of twenty three mean sure keep yeah going. <laughs> um, she has a service where you well it's not really a service it's a donation it's not really owned by her but you pay five dollars and it looks at your polymorphisms and your propensity based on the polymorphism for you know your ability to process things metabolically. So, you know, how, God, do, you, how do you go? That sounds dodgy, plus, plus. <laughs> it's only this year that we've finally managed to lift genomic genetic te testing to be good enough to be used in emergency medicine. Mm. And even there with a very low success rate. I don't think it's, you know, encouraged to be used as medical advice, more informative than anything. But it's it, You mean it, entertaining? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, 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 it's not real. <laughs> like there, there have been cases of people who have sent the same samples from the same mouth under different names to some of these genetic testing companies and got completely different results. Really? You didn't know that? No, I didn't no, know that. No, that's okay. <laughs> so you're, you're telling me about rationality and you're telling me that there's medical proof that the hot and cold showers are good for you. They feel fun. I've got no problem with feeling fun. What, what are the health benefits it's supposed to do for you? Um, it induces, what do they call that form of stress, uh, related to food? I can't remember the name. It's a type of metabolic stress. It's a form of good stress. Can't ah, well, all I know is that, uh, one of my, a few of my friends have actually joined the 300 club where they expose their skin to a temperature change of 300 Fahrenheit degrees. Right. The, is this the, um, in Antarctica? Right. In the middle of winter. I was going to say, it's not... For self-entertainment. <laughs> when the government meteorologist says the temperature is 
colder than minus 100 Fahrenheit. They go into the sauna and crank it up to plus 200 Fahrenheit and then uh, naked apart from shoes, uh, immediately trot out of the plus 200 into the minus 100 into the middle of the night, uh, completely black, uh, trot around the South Pole and come back inside again. Sounds like those new cryo... <laughs> well, one of my friends did it and he was okay. The first time, the next year he did it again uh, and he was feeling a bit cocky and so he went a bit faster and he moved the air too fast in and out of his lungs and got um, a bit of chillblain uh, frostbite on his airways and had a cough for about three weeks. Wow. And I was talking I was talking to him in a corridor and then this other lady came up and was listening. I said, she said, oh, yeah, I'm in the 300 club. I said, yeah, how'd you go? And she said, well, I went down, she was at the South Pole for over a winter. Uh, and she said, well, I went with uh, my friend and uh, we were going a bit too fast. We thought it was too easy. So he got a bit of frostbite of the foreskin. I got a bit of frostbite of one nipple. <laughs> so this, the air's dead quiet, dead still, because if it's moving, you'll be dead. This This flowing that you constantly have of ideas, are you always sort of in like a, a semi-permanent flow state? Uh, I'm aware of the world around me. Yeah. And so the other day, I just had the shower running uh, for my wife and it was just warming up. And I suddenly noticed that the towels at the end of the shower were rocking backwards and forwards in a sort of syncopated rhythm. It was sort of back, forwards, back, back, forwards, forwards, back, forwards. And then it, it was a repeating syncopated rhythm. And I washed it for a while and then uh, forgot to tell her how the shower was ready. And then um, just cranked the volume up a little bit and the rhythm went away. So there's just one particular node where it set up this repeating irregular rhythm. Right. It was fantastic. <laughs> I'm realizing um, I'm starting to run out of time with you, but what I've wanted to know, I guess, with with this and your process of storytelling You've been doing this for a long time now. About a third of a century. Yeah. Well, I've written 44 books. A 43, lot. yeah. I'm curious as to what you think has not changed in that period of time about the way that you communicate science. Start off with something amazing, explain and finish with a joke. <laughs> that's that's the formula. Um, mate, did you ever see Xena, the warrior woman uh, with various... The warrior princess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Xena, yeah. Yeah, it used yeah. to be on TV. That yeah. was the... Uh, Lucy Lawless, great yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's 100% correct. It's a, Obviously, it's a documentary, not a fictional series. But they had storytellers in there who were treated um, as sort of royalty. They'd be, they come in the village, they tell the stories, they get food, they get sent on their way with some more food, and so they have a good life. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty noble cause, I think. I think um, the ability to tell those sort of stories and make it interesting is... Well, I, I find stories that are already interesting. Yeah. They've got something weird going well, on already. they are, but the way that they're framed are not. Well, that takes a long time because yeah. you've got to get it right, you've got to get your facts right, and then you've got to practice it on a few people until you get it right. Hmm. And you get to get the uh, the modality right. So whenever I'm doing presentations on you know the big screen, I always have some stuff that I'm familiar with, and I know, I know works. And I always have stuff that's brand new that I've never done before, just to scare me a little bit. <laughs> and I don't normally always get it the first time. It's only when you're actually trying it in front of an audience, you think, oh, okay, I'll go a bit longer on that and shorten that out, and that went too long. And that sort of sounds like the comedians we've had and the way they they speak about their bits. They always have eighty percent. The, the stuff that they know works 
and then twenty to thirty percent revolving through that's that's just pure new stuff. I, I'm, I'm always bringing in new stuff, yeah. uh, just to scare me and keep me fresh. <laughs> Who are the, I guess, communicators or leaders that you love in the science community? Who are the people oh, that you love to follow? All of them. All of them. Um, Robin Williams and Bill Nye and Carl Sagan and Julius Sumner Miller. Anybody who has a go at do And comedians. I love comedians. Yeah. And Eddie Izzard and Will Anderson. Anybody who is on stage entertaining people. Um, uh, and Steve Poltz. I've started following him. He's a musician. Um, and if you ever get a chance... Mate, go and watch him, Steve P O L T Z. He's probably one of the best stage performers in, in bringing the audience into him and vice versa. And I discovered him up at Woodford a couple of years ago when I was doing some gigs up there. And somebody said, Go and check out this guy, okay. And I, I followed every gig. And for his last gig, he turned up on stage in front of um, 2,000 people wearing a stolen Hilton Hotel white board bathrobe and then started a performance and then got changed on stage while still performing <laughs> wow Steve Holt yeah and he, he brought the and I've seen him do 2,000 people BOLTZ and I've seen him do 20 people and what I learned from that was that he actually went into the audience he went to bring them closer to him so he sort of fed off them in a way. Yeah, you, you you normally don't get an audience firing until you've got the magic number, which is about 120 or so. And there's a whole evolutionary reason for that. Uh, if you plot a log-log graph of brain size versus the natural group of a society, we humans come in at around 120. 120 in a platoon, in religious groups where they keep each other in line by the religious social pressure. And once they get over that, they then have to split into two smaller ones. A company can run informally until you get to about 120 people. You've got 100 or so people in your address book that you constantly deal with. So... If you're trying to do a comedy act to 40 people, it's just not going to fire. You're going to have to sweat your guts out. Mm. But once you've got to about 120, then you can start something going and then they'll pick it up and then they'll run by them. It'll ripple through the audience and then come back to you. Wow. And then you can start working off that. The biggest audience I ever did was a couple of thousand, 5,000, I think, at the Hammersmith Apollo last year with That's the right. Brian Cox show. That was so much fun. Yeah, I had seven minutes on stage. God, it was good. Are you an entertainer or a science communicator, do you think? Oh, you have to be an entertainer. Yeah. Uh, science communicator sounds too worthy. Yeah, it does. Uh, I'm an entertainer in the science communication mode, but you've got to be an entertainer first. Mm. And you've got to go through the training. Hmm. I've got to ask you some short, fast questions to finish Lay off. Lay on me. Here we go. Okay. okay. Um, first question for you, now that uh, we've gone through the revolving door of uh, – Prime Ministers, what would your first 100 days as PM look like? Uh, I would do a whole bunch of things that would make the situation better for our children and their children. Mm -hmm. It would depend entirely on what I found when I got in there. Okay. That's the lesson I learned from Trump. Yeah. God bless you, Trump. <laughs> um, what's your favorite imperfection of yourself? Uh, oh, I don't have any because they're all bad. I don't listen. Um, sometimes I go deliberately deaf because I'm concentrating on what I'm thinking. Um, oh, none of them, none of the imperfections are good. Uh, oh, okay. Um, I am very good at loading the dishwasher, which then 
takes me down the pathway of actually being making us late in getting out of the house because I'm just making sure that none of the cups are facing upwards. <laughs> All the spoons are lying on their sides and none of the plates will hit each other and chip as they go back and forth in the dishwasher under the rotating jets of water. Very meticulous. So, well, that, that can be bad because it can lead to you being late. That my, my major, one of my many faults is that I'm uh, chronically late. But the advantage is that none of my kids are late. They're all early. Ha <laughs> 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 ha, my oh. master plan one. <laughs> what does uh, your morning routine look like? Um, get up, do a bit of exercise, have some fruit. Okay. And your evening? Um, hang around with the family, uh, eat, uh, don't do much cooking, always do the cleaning, um, hang around with the family. Although it's been awfully busy these last couple of months because I went to Mongolia and Tibet for a minute. That's right. Yeah. And then there was going over to, uh, around Australia for the science week. So I'm sort of a bit behind at the moment. Um, best purchase under $200. The solar-powered prayer wheel I bought in Tibet. Okay. Prayer wheel? Solar-powered. Wow. Sits on the dashboard. Because when, it, when, it, when the prayer wheel spins, it's not spinning for you. It's spinning for everybody. It's putting out good vibes for everybody. And it's powered by sunlight. Take that, the cold-loving fascists. <laughs> um, okay. What well, Last question for you. What seems obvious to you but not to others? Uh, the reality of the complexity of the world around us. Hmm. Um, there are people who don't know how to fix their car or change a tyre or fix their computer or their dishwasher or their light bulb or anything in their whole house. Their major technological skill is being able to recharge their phone. They can find the plug and put it in the hole. That's about it. <laughs> Um, all right, Carl. Any last requests for our audience? Where can they find you? Oh, just go to drcarl.com. Yeah. Uh, drkrl.com. Uh, come to my shows, and I'm very happy to do free science Q and A's for classes, okay. school classes around Australia. Just contact me at the University of Sydney, or tells you how to do it on drcarl.com. Do you have a? I think you're due for another book, right? Yeah, number 44 is coming out shortly. Okay. Do we have a name? Can we oh, tell people not anything yet? We're still sort of publishing around yeah. with it. Yeah, bummer. Sorry. Okay. And your most prevalent, I'd say, on Instagram or would you say Twitter? Uh, I like uh, Twitter better. Uh, Instagram's fun, but uh, I like um, finding out things which I didn't know before and where I've made a mistake. I love that on Twitter. Twitter is so good for that. It is. Well, Carl, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Jordan. Cheers. Thank you for making it this far. Before you run off, we have a quick ask for you. Subscribe on your podcast app. Subscribing will give you priority access and help your fellow-minded listeners find Uncommon. Or you could also share with a friend. This will go a long way in building our audience, which will help us both get further guests on the show. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Neural, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E. But until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Neural Media is an effortless and affordable content production service. We help businesses save time and money by taking away the pain of producing content. 
If you want to grow your audience through content production, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash media. Create a quote and request a callback from me personally. If you want to learn more about the benefits of growing your audience, download our free series on how to create content at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast receive a special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON.